Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The president celebrates the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. With this law, the American people won and the special interests lost. Really? We'll look at how the bill amends an Obamacare provision. This harmful new rule could force physicians to perform abortions. We'll look at two pieces of legislation and what they mean. The main focus of the election transparency initiative these last two years has been stopping those two bills. They are Washington takeovers of elections. A father pushes back against a school district that undermined parental authority and sought to facilitate the gender transition of his daughter. Our daughter was living the double life without our consent or knowledge. Why? Why are we pushing so hard in this direction? The United States is going the opposite direction of the rest of the world. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each weekday through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. And take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the Inflation Reduction Act. The massive piece of legislation you know by now has nothing to do with inflation except the likelihood that it will make it worse. But it is loaded with provisions that will also make matters worse. A particular concern is what it could require of doctors, nurses, and others in the field of medicine as this new legislation amends the Obamacare bill. Gino Geraci explains from 94.7 The Word in Denver. I did want to bring your attention to a um, an article that's been published by Michael Faust at ChristianHeadlines.com. The headline reads, New Biden Rule Could Force Christian Doctors to Perform Abortions, According to Some Legal Experts. And Michael Faust is reporting that the Biden administration proposed a new rule that critics say could force Christian doctors in religious hospitals to perform abortions or to participate in gender transition reassignment procedures under Obamacare. The Biden Department of Health and Human Services said that the new rule was an implementation of the much-debated Section 1557 of the Not-So-Affordable Care Act. You'll remember it passed with no Republican votes whatsoever, but it prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, disability. But under the Biden rule, Section 1557 is read to prohibit discrimination. When it says sex, the Biden administration takes that to mean sexual orientation, gender identity. So the new rule makes clear, according to Section 1557 and the Health and Human Services, that discrimination on the basis of sex includes discrimination on the basis of pregnancy or related conditions, including pregnancy termination, according to the Health and Human Services news release. And so, again, if a woman comes in pregnant and says, I want you to kill my unborn child, according to the Health and Human Services rule, 
you must kill the child. According to the quote, it says this proposed rule ensures that people nationwide can access health care free from discrimination. It's really interesting, again, how they always term killing your unborn child as health care. So can you imagine it's not a moral problem with these people to literally mutilate children or kill unborn children? So the move by the Biden administration reverses a policy by the Trump administration, which advanced pro-life policies in health care and interpreted Section 1557 as referencing male, female, as determined by biology. And, of course, religious liberty advocates criticized the new Biden rule. Matt Bowman, who's the senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, said, and I quote, doctors should never be forced to perform a controversial and often medically dangerous procedure that goes against their judgment or their conscience or their religious beliefs. Matt Bowman said, quote, President Biden's administration is grossly overreaching its authority and in so doing, putting children's psychological and physical health in danger. This harmful new rule could force physicians to perform abortions or controversial procedures. Think gender reassignment procedures. And the quote continues, that seek to alter a person's biological sex and could force employers to pay for those procedures in their health care plans. So, again, the wickedness knows no bounds. Not only are they insisting that you be able to kill your unborn child, but that your employer pay for it or the government pay for it. The Inflation Reduction Act, of course, has already been signed into law. It passed in the 50-50 Senate because of the disappointing and unexpected shift of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Democrat leadership is now looking at two pieces of legislation you need to be familiar with. H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. I turn to Ken Cuccinelli, now leading the Election Transparency Initiative. Uh, In light of what happened back in 2020, how concerned should we really be over the integrity of our election processes? You know, Don, I will say this. 2020 was a mess. Uh, There's never been a perfect election, but it was particularly bad. But the good news is we've made a lot of improvements in a lot of states since then. Now, where you and I live in Virginia, it actually has gotten a bit worse, but we found a way to remediate that. After 2020, three or 4,000 ordinary citizens stepped forward and got themselves trained as election officials and went inside and helped run the election. You see in the news these days, the Democrats are screaming bloody murder because Republicans are showing up as election officials. (laughs) And and mind you, when this process started in Virginia, the Democrats outnumbered Republicans inside the polling places about two to one. But I will tell you, as a former attorney general, the most important thing to keep someone considering doing bad things like cheating in the election is their sense that people are watching. And the likelihood of getting caught, it isn't the punishments, 
It's how likely are they to get caught. And no matter what the rules are, both sides should try to win by the same rules and that everybody should have to obey the rules. One of the big problems in 2020 is so many state officials broke their own state's laws. They broke their own rules. And you don't pass laws to say follow the law. That's what the first law was for. Um, but we've made real improvements in other states all around the country. And, I mean, I could rattle off dozens of them just by way of example Zuckerbucks have been banned in 22 states now, including Virginia on a bipartisan basis. It was also done on a bipartisan basis in Kentucky and in South Carolina. So this isn't just a Republican versus Democrat stuff. And the beauty of good elections, if you put 100 people from all across America in a room, they'd come out probably with over 80 percent agreement in how a, an election should be run to be run well. They'd come out with voter ID. They'd come out with clean voter rolls. They'd come out with all these kinds of basic, simple things that are really just common sense. They're not controversial until one side or the other is proposing them. And then suddenly they become political. Well, I noticed at the top of your website, and again, folks, it's electiontransparency.org, I believe. You have two bills there that you are calling on our senators to vote no on, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. Talk about those bills and why it's important that they not see the light of day. So at the federal level, the main focus of the election transparency initiative these last two years has been stopping those two bills. They are Washington takeovers of elections. And since the founders passed the Constitution, states have been in charge of elections. The only exceptions to that were after the Civil War and when the federal government, through the Civil Rights Act, uh, was making sure that black citizens could vote everywhere. That's it. Other than that, the states have run elections. Well, the radical left, and I don't mean all Democrats, I mean the truly radical ones, want a Washington takeover with one type of election system run from Washington where it's easy to cheat and hard to prove. And um, we want a system where it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. Well, why would they want it easy to cheat? Well, because they cheat. And um, they, they know that they will not be the only ones that do that, but they'll do more of it and win more elections with it more vigorously than anybody else in the system. That's a danger to our republic. It's a danger to our constitutional form of democracy. And um, that's why it's been so important these last two years to stop H.R. 1 and to stop H.R. 4. These are bill numbers, federal bill numbers. that really were comprehensive election takeovers by Washington. And to give a sense of just some of the ways they were bad, H.R. 1 would have forced states to register every adult who came into any of their databases to vote. Well, lots of non-citizens come into those databases. It then would have removed criminal penalties for anybody who was registered that way when they voted. That literally means millions of non-citizens would be pushed onto the voter rolls, and while it wouldn't technically be legal for them to vote, the punishment for voting would have been removed. That was not a coincidence. At the same time, they've got an open borders policy going. So you can see the kind of strategic plan they have. And again, the Democrats, you know, sort of on your street at home, they're regular people. 
Edison, who's pushing this? These are the real Stalinists, like AOC, the squad. And unfortunately, President Joe Biden has let that very small minority of the Democrat Party, the most radical portion of it, really have control of his administration. And um, and certainly they are pushing the leadership around in both the House and the Senate as well among the Democrats. So that's a very dangerous situation. We've barely averted it so far. Uh, if Republicans take back either the House or the Senate this November, that danger will pass for now. Um, these bills have been around for years. They weren't cooked up in response to 2020, so they're not going anywhere. So we have to remain vigilant. Coming up, a look at the subversion of parental rights in our public schools. Our daughter was living the double life without her consent or knowledge. When our Christian Outlook continues in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. Our public schools have received some well-deserved scrutiny in how they have treated the kids who were entrusted to their care over the course of the pandemic. They have also begun to receive scrutiny for how they have handled kids who are struggling with issues of their sexual identity. Parents are fighting back. That would include Wendell Perez, a courageous Florida father who filed a lawsuit early this year against his public school for how they treated his daughter. A portion of his court testimony was made public this week. In January of uh, 2022, I went to um, my daughter's elementary school to deal with a very sensitive incident. My daughter attempted suicide by hanging in one of the school bathrooms. My wife and I were told that, uh, by the school counselor that it happened because of an ongoing issue with her gender identity. We were in shock because our daughter never showed any signs of questioning her biological sex. Um, we were told that they knew about the gender issue due to meetings they were having with our daughter behind our backs. We learned that during these meetings, our, daughter, uh, our daughter's confusion was affirmed and validated through the use of fictitious male names and male pronouns. Our daughter uh, was living a double life without our consent or knowledge. Watch how this case and others like it turn out in the courts. They reveal something about how so many of our public schools view parental authority and how far they're willing to go. Here's my friend Bob Burney from The Word, 880 AM in Columbus, Ohio. If anything good came out of COVID, it was parents began to learn what their children were being taught in school. Before that, it's not that they didn't care. They just trusted the teachers because they were told, we're the professionals, drop your kids off at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning and just trust us. And for years, parents have said, okay, well, it's a deal. And then during COVID, 
with the whole virtual classroom thing, parents began looking over the shoulder of their kids and started saying, are you serious? This is what you're being taught? And all across America, parents started showing up at school board meetings and simply asking, why are you teaching this to our children? Why are you putting pornography in front of our kids? Why are you destroying American history? Why are you planting dangerous ideologies in the minds of our children? Why are you dividing us racially? And as a result, all the way from the White House down, parents were called terrorists. Remember that? The National Education Association, the biggest union in America, wrote a letter to the White House. we got to do something about these terrorists. Well, who are the terrorists? Parents who dared to ask questions. And school boards and the educational professionals all across America flipped out. Stay out of the school. We know what we're doing. Leave us alone. Well, the uh, radical left is not the friend of parents when it comes to their health and physical needs either. Because the radical liberal left, again, they honestly believe we know better what your child needs than you do. We are the professionals, we are educated, and you are parents who really don't know anything. Here is another illustration of this. A professor who happens to be a researcher at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas is saying that a parent who is unwilling to give a child puberty blockers if the experts determine that the child is truly transgender, and they suggest that the child be put on puberty blockers or hormone treatment if the parent does not agree. It is child abuse on the side of the parent, and the child should be taken out of the home and the parents should be held criminally liable, and the state should intervene. Quote, A professor at Children's Mercy Hospital says, Not giving a child puberty blockers is a form of psychological abuse, and suggests parents should be held criminally liable, and the state should intervene. This is how radical the left has become on these issues of gender, sexuality, and so forth. Now, the important thing, and if you deal with this, this is what you need to know. That is denying science. The United States of America and our medical community and our psychological and psychiatric community, particularly that portion of the community that deals with children, is going the opposite direction of the rest of the world. 
The UK, Great Britain, the National Health Service, the NHS, is shutting down the Tavistock Center. Uh, If you want to do a little more research on it, do an internet search, Tavistock, T-A-V-I-S-T-O-C-K. If you want to get facts and truth, do a little research on the trial that took place last year in Great Britain surrounding the Tavistock Center. It was the biggest transgender treatment center in Great Britain, one of the largest in the world, and they were sued by two former patients who had the uh, puberty blockers, hormone treatments, and so forth, and then realized, oh my goodness, what a terrible mistake. And experts from around the world testified in court, and the court ruled in favor of the two former patients and against the National Health Service and the Tavistock Center, based on fact, science. And the rest of the world is beginning to wake up. We've been lied to. We have been absolutely lied to. But the medical community and the far-left politicians here in America are headed in the opposite direction. So much so, this psychiatrist at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas says, if we say the child should receive puberty blockers and hormone treatment and the parents resist we're going to file criminal charges against the parent and we're going to try to have the child removed from the home this is how radical the left is becoming coming up another terribly misnamed piece of legislation the respect for marriage act this is a really big bill because we're going to face a whole nation of Jack Phillips-like issues if this passes. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to DaybreakInsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's DaybreakInsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. We have tracked closely the development of the Dobbs case that resulted in the overturning of Roe v. Wade this past June. That decision from the court stirred speculation on the left that the court might also take up a challenge to Obergefell, the 2015 decision recognizing same-sex marriage. So, Gerald Nadler, the liberal New York congressman, put forth a piece of legislation that they've dubbed the Respect for Marriage Act. Gino Geraci turned to Jeff Hunt of Colorado Christian University from 94.7 FM, The Word, in Denver. Tell us a little bit about why this is bad, why more than 80 Christian and faith-based groups have opposed it. 
tell us why people are saying that this is an attack on people of faith. Huge issue. I mean, this is a really big bill because we're going to face a whole nation of Jack Phillips-like issues if this passes. Mm -hmm. So it's called the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. It was passed with three hours of debate, no notice, no committee hearings, no discussions with faith communities, rushed through the House of Representatives. And we we understood that those on the left side of the aisle were likely going to support this. It was very disappointing to see that 47 Republicans joined with them to vote for this. I don't think they understand the gravitas of this bill. So here's what it will do. It will essentially force every state to recognize whatever any other state deems as marriage. So if you have a state that says, listen, you know, we've decided that we have quote unquote evolved in our understanding of marriage and we're going to allow for polyamorous relationships, allow more than two people to get married. Well, every state in the union then must recognize that as marriage. Now, if you are a quote-unquote state actor, that you have some relationship with the state, if you decide that you are not going to uphold gay marriage, multi-person marriages, the state will then allow for what's called private right of action. We see this in Texas around the abortion thing. So people can sue a quote-unquote state actor for not recognizing marriage. So what is a state actor? Gino, have you ever performed a wedding before? I've, I've performed li- literally hundreds over the last 30-plus years. And did you ever say, by the power invested in me or anything like that, I declare you married? Well, that power partially comes from the state, and therefore you are a state actor. And so ADF and a lot of these Christian legal organizations are looking at this very short bill. It's only two pages going, this may open up every single person that acts in any type of a relationship with a state, whether it's marrying people, whether it's a Christian-based adoption agencies, whether it's a Christian college, to possibly facing lawsuits by people independently of the government. So you can have literally a nation full of Jack Phillips-like situations. So that's one deep consideration. The other is that they can take away 501c3 tax status. The IRS could use this bill to go after Christian colleges and take away their nonprofit status. This should wake up everybody, all eyes on this. And now it hasn't passed the Senate. It needs 60 votes to pass the Senate. I spoke directly with Senator Ted Cruz about this bill. He's concerned that there may be 10 Republicans that defect and vote with the Democrats on this bill. So we need everybody to be contacting their senators on this. One of the things that concerns me greatly isn't simply this issue. It is the criminalization of the belief that homosexual marriage is wrong, that it's wrong, that it's evil, that it's wicked, that it's corrupt. So imagine somebody like me on this radio program where I say, you know, something isn't marriage just simply because you call it marriage. Marriage, by definition, requires a covenant Now, could this bill criminalize the belief that homosexual marriage is evil, wrong, and sinful? And if you say it out loud, you could be held criminally liable. It's definitely in that direction. And we've seen that with Jack Phillips, right? The Colorado Civil Rights Commission, everything that's happened in the state. Uh, We now have a new case, 303 Creative, that's going against this Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So the left is already trying to punish and intimidate 
people of faith that have held historically committed beliefs to the idea that a man and a woman in a committed monogamous relationship is what marriage is. But, you know, this is what's really important for everybody to understand. We're all talking about transgender issues right now, transgenderism right. in the classroom, the, the you know, 60 plus genders out there. You it's can a poison pill. Yeah. You want. We didn't just get here accidentally. We decided as a culture, not us as the church, but as the culture, decided to make marriage genderless as a result of Obergefell and the whole gay rights movement. They decided to make marriage genderless. We're now at a place where either gender is really important or it can be disposed of or you can switch it. We have no idea. We're lost. And you saw that movie, What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. Yes. They can't define what a woman is. They can't define what marriage is. It is, it is really, truly an attack on Christianity. That is what this is about. Coming up, we are in a culture war, whether or not we want to be. Albert Moeller, when the Christian outlook continues in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. All these issues we've dealt with thus far in the program, abortion and whether the government can compel a health care worker to participate in the procedure, public education, parental rights, the meaning of sex, the meaning of marriage. Some Christian leaders just aren't interested in engaging in these culture war issues. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. Are we or are we not in the midst of what's described as a culture war? I'm just going to say simply, straightforwardly, undeniably, we are. Culture war explains much of what is going on in the world around us. It doesn't explain everything, but it explains why at the most fundamental level of our civilizational life, there is a war over what is true, what is beautiful, what is good, what should be moral, what is marriage. What does it mean to be male and female, or does it mean anything that's objectively true? Now, we need to recognize at first that the term culture war is originally descriptive. That is, it describes a fundamental struggle over the future of the culture, a fundamental struggle over the future of the civilization, a struggle that is not merely the engagement of partisan politics. It's not merely an argument over national policy. It's an argument over reality. Now, the term culture war in English goes back particularly in, say, evangelical conversation to the 1990s and to the contribution of a sociologist at the University of Virginia whose name is James Davison Hunter. It was James Davison Hunter who actually published a book on the culture war in which he made very clear that descriptively what's going on in America is such a conflict over fundamental issues that it's not just, say, an argument over abortion. It's not just an argument over sexuality. It's not just an argument over the size of government or taxation or foreign policy. It is a fundamental struggle to define the future of the civilization on its most basic terms. 
Now, there's another interesting dimension to this, which is when you are talking about modern electoral politics, you're talking about constitutional self-government. You're talking about a struggle over who's going to decide what is and isn't marriage, who's going to decide the prevailing moral structure of the civilization. But there have been literal wars over the culture, over civilization in times past. Thinking of Western history, perhaps the most important of those were the military encounters between the Western European nations and the Ottoman Empire. There you are looking at a civilization as defined by Islam under the Quran and a civilization that had very serious and obvious Christian commitments. Let's just say that life under those two different civilizations would be remarkably different. And thus, this was a battle between two civilizations. It was a culture war between two cultures. The point of the culture war right now is that the most interesting battles are inside a single civilization, inside a culture, and in the case of the United States, inside one nation. And you see that right now. It's all over the headlines. It's beneath and above. It's throughout just about everything. You think about the issue of abortion. You think about the headlines. You recognize that just on the issue of abortion— On the issue of whether the fundamental moral reality is supposedly a woman's right to choose or to control her own body on the one hand, and the preservation of human life on the other hand, in this case an unborn human life and the defense of the sanctity of life, you look at those two different arguments, one or the other will gain supremacy in our society. That's just the way it works, one or the other. And this is not like a war between two different empires, one pro-life and one pro-abortion. This is a battle within one culture or at least what right now appears to be one culture. The danger is, of course, that a culture war points out there isn't a unitary culture. You end up with two different cultures, and one's going to win and one's going to lose. And one of the most interesting conversations or debates right now is found among Christians, and that would include at least some evangelicals arguing or debating over whether or not or to what extent faithful Christians should be engaged in a culture war. There have been articles written by figures suggesting that it's wrong for evangelicals to become cultural warriors or culture warriors. But you know, the point I want to make is that we are in a culture war whether or not we want to be. It's not something that we have declared. It was declared on us. And furthermore, it's a struggle over the society that no one in a participatory democracy can actually evade. This is not a war that, say, conservative Christians declared upon a supposedly secular and liberal state. And for that matter, it is not so much that you had the left declare a culture war. The left tried to gain supremacy in the culture and is largely won in many sectors of our society. They've done so under their own fundamental vision of human flourishing and their idea of the human good. We believe that it's fundamentally wrong, fundamentally flawed, that it will lead to the opposite of human flourishing and that it actually represents the opposite of human good. So you have two rival understandings of what is good for humanity over what kind of policies and laws should be put in place. And the culture war explains why, when you look at the division right now among Americans, it's not uneven. It's not like, okay, over here you have a division over abortion. Over here you have a division over same-sex marriage. Those are completely different pictures. No, they're not. They're largely the same people. In other words, you have pro-lifers who are also pro-marriage as the union of a man and a woman. And that's because there's a theological worldview structure behind that commitment that explains the commonality on these issues. On the left, again, 
you have largely, if not uniformly, a consistency on the left. In other words, you have very few people on the left you're going to find out who say, you know, I am absolutely for same-sex marriage, but I'm against this transgender revolution. There just aren't that many people, because if you feel free to redefine human morality, sexual behavior, marriage, and all the rest, it's really difficult to say, well, I'll go for A and B, but not for C. Increasingly, we really are looking at Americans looking over a vast cultural divide of contested terrain. The point I want to make is this. There is no way to go AWOL in the culture war. There is simply no way to avoid it. And one thing to think about here is what I have often described as the evangelical voters dilemma. A vote is a moral choice. A vote, thus, is an exercise of moral responsibility. But in an electoral system, not voting is no less a moral choice and a moral responsibility. In other words, if you have the power of the vote, if you vote for candidate A or candidate B or you don't vote, they are all moral choices. They all come with political consequences, and not one of them is actually less ethically fraught than any other. Now, the fact is that you can look all across the political spectrum and see God misused, God misquoted, God misattributed. You can look all across the political spectrum and you can see people making bad theological arguments or, frankly, political arguments that don't even meet the slightest theological muster. But nonetheless, the point I want to make is that Christians didn't declare the culture war. Conservative Christians didn't decide that there would be a fundamental struggle over our society and civilization. And I want to make the point, Christians can't avoid it. We can't evade it. You may deny that you are actually a part of the battle, but like it or not, one way or the other, you are. The battle will find you. Coming up, love of neighbor is not just being sweet and polite. Love of neighbor also means we have an inherent responsibility to seek that the laws are righteous. More of Albert Moeller when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. When we look at our country and our culture and our politics today, I recognize that there is fatigue factor. We need to oppose this, fight against that, vote against so-and-so, and on and on. I hear you. We're tired of it. Let's return to more of Albert Moeller looking at the culture war. Like it or not, someone's going to decide what's taught in school, in the public schools. Like it or not, someone's going to decide what the laws are. Like it or not, someone in this representative democracy of constitutional self-government is going to decide what the definition of marriage is. Someone, like it or not, is going to decide what parental rights are, just how far parents are understood to have the rights to raise their own children. Someone's going to decide just how far religious liberty is to extend. It is the fact that in our times, the state has taken on a claim of power and authority that means the state is largely invading the life of every single family, the life of every single home, the life of every single community, and someone's going to decide what the policies are, who's going to lead, what reality is, and again, what marriage is, whether or not a boy is recognized as a boy and a girl is a girl, whether or not you have forced conformity with a new ideology of sexual expressivism and progressivism, all that's going to be decided. There's no way around it. Now, honestly, the right kind of argument, I think, to be found among Christians is how we are to engage these issues in the public square and how we are to engage those with whom we disagree. The fact is that Christians owe the society at large and every single human being made in God's image. We owe to our neighbor, love of neighbor, 
But we also owe to our neighbor the truth. We also owe to our neighbor righteous laws and a just system of government and a system of laws and policies that is consistent with creation itself and the creator's plan in making us, for example, human beings in his image and making us male and female and establishing marriage as the very fundamental institution of our society. Love of neighbor is not just being sweet and polite. Love of neighbor also means we have an inherent responsibility to seek that the laws are righteous, that the laws comport with reality, that the policies and governing structures and reigning ideologies of our time are as consistent with biblical truth as is possible. One of the patterns I see is the fact that the culture warrior label is often attached to people who just hold to a different political understanding. Now, there are those who misuse God in just about every conceivable way, and that's on both sides of the spectrum. But the reality is that I see this criticism often thrown at conservative Christians who, after all, right now are in a position of having to fight for the most fundamental issues from religious liberty and the right to pray in public all the way to the sanctity of human life. These aren't uncomplicated. And frankly, we do have a responsibility to engage these issues while demonstrating civic respect and, for that matter, love of neighbor, which is even more fundamental. But again, love of neighbor doesn't end with just being respectful at also extends to defending the truth that is essential for the flourishing of humanity. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, and never miss these and other great conversations. Thanks for joining us. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushon and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. She expected the world.